Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 478 for the 31st of January, 2016. This week, vacation time is just around the corner, and if you're thinking of upgrading your photo gear for summer fun, I have some ideas. In short circuits, Adobe updated Lightroom this week, and there's a really cool feature that I'm looking forward to trying. Facebook hints that it may develop a video-only service. In spare parts, only on the website, Chrome may be one of the safest browsers imaginable, but that doesn't mean you can forget about rogue software. And the U.S. Computer Emergency Readiness Team is warning about a threat called DorkBot. We're approaching one of the prime photography seasons in the Northern Hemisphere. Summer brings warm weather and vacations, more daylight, children playing outside. If you're thinking about upgrading your photo gear for the summer, now's a good time to do some research. Many TechBiter Worldwide subscribers are interested in photography, so I occasionally spend some time on that subject. Usually it's the software that catches my eye, but this time I thought hardware might be a good topic. After all, Adobe Lightroom and Photoshop are probably all that you need to know about software. For that reason, today's program is all about lenses. Although cameras that are built into smartphones are astonishingly good, serious photography still requires a serious camera. Professional and amateur photographers alike still gravitate towards single-lens reflex cameras because they offer through-the-lens viewfinders and interchangeable lenses. New types of cameras have interchangeable lenses but are smaller than traditional SLRs because they have electronic viewfinders, smaller sensors, or both. For this article, I've decided to stick with standard SLRs. Even so, there are two types of digital SLRs, those with full sensors and those with cropped sensors. The full sensor cameras have a sensor that's the same size as a 35mm piece of film, about 36mm by 24mm. A cropped sensor camera, also called APS-C, has a sensor that's around 22.2mm by 14.8mm, if you have a Canon, or 23.5mm by 15.6mm for just about everybody else. Because of this, there is what's called a magnification factor on cropped sensor cameras. Compared to a 35mm film camera, a 50mm lens on a cropped sensor camera is the equivalent of a 75mm lens, or on a Canon camera, the equivalent of an 80mm lens. If you think of 50mm as the normal lens based on your experience with 35mm cameras, you'll be surprised by the images you obtain with a 50mm lens on a cropped sensor camera. Considering a lens's angle of view is the more accurate way to determine what the lens sees, but often it's better to simply use that multiplication factor to describe a lens in terms of its 35mm camera equivalents. That's what I'll do today. There are a couple of major varieties of lenses. Fixed-length lenses, or prime lenses, and zoom lenses. 
Beyond that, there are additional categories such as extreme wide-angle or fisheye lenses, the 35mm equivalent being less than 15mm, wide-angle lenses, those in the 35mm equivalent of 20 to 40mm, normal lenses with the 35mm equivalent of 50mm, moderate telephoto lenses, 70 to 100mm in equivalent sizes, Telephoto lenses, the 35mm equivalents there would be 100 to 400mm, and then the extreme telephotos, 35mm equivalent exceeding 400mm. You'll find a chart on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Most photographers seem to prefer either wide-angle views or telephoto views. For example, my natural vision seems to be more in the telephoto range, and the lenses in my case support that statement. But I also like to use, sometimes anyway, extreme wide-angle lenses. When I do, though, it's more difficult for me to achieve my photographic vision. I have to work at it harder. Full-frame sensors favor photographers with a wide-angle worldview. APS-C cropped sensors and the micro four-thirds sensors favor those of us with telephoto eyes. Because of the magnification factor, it's nearly impossible to find extreme wide-angle lenses for cropped sensors. At the other end of the spectrum, a lens that would fit in a long telephoto category on a full-frame sensor becomes an extreme telephoto on a cropped sensor camera. The other sensor format I mentioned, Micro Four Thirds, essentially doubles the focal length of a lens from a full-frame sensor. Another sensor format called Micro Four Thirds essentially doubles the focal length of a lens on a full-frame sensor. A 15mm lens would be an extreme wide-angle lens on a full-frame sensor, or a 35mm film camera. It would be the equivalent of about a 24mm lens on an APS-C camera, that makes it wide-angle, and a 40mm lens, about normal, on a micro four-thirds camera. Lenses may just be hunks of glass, but they're expensive, particularly at the short and long extremes. Nikon and Canon lenses often cost several thousand dollars, and at the extremes, it's even worse. Canon has an 800mm telephoto lens that is priced at $13,000. At the other end of the spectrum, there's the 8-15mm to 15 millimeter zoom lens for just $1,249. There are some ways to save money on lenses. I'll talk about that a little later. When I started getting interested in photography, that was shortly after dirt was invented, back when Japan was just beginning an effort to displace Germany as the manufacturer of high-quality photographic equipment, cameras typically came with a 50mm lens. On a 35mm film camera, that was normal. Zoom lenses were slow, heavy, expensive, and not particularly sharp. A lot has changed since then. Today's cameras invariably come with a relatively fast, small, and sharp zoom lens that provides coverage from moderate wide-angle to moderate telephoto. These are called kit lenses. They're called that because they're in the original kit. While they're not outstanding in any way, they are acceptable in almost every way. The maximum aperture varies over the zoom range of the lens. That's something that would have been unacceptable when photographers had to use handheld meters. Now that the cameras themselves measure the amount of light coming through the lens, that is no longer a problem. Because variable apertures are now acceptable, those kit lenses can be made smaller than lenses that need to maintain an aperture over the entire zoom range. They're lighter because of this, and they're less expensive. 
Single focal length prime lenses are a lot less common than they used to be because of the improvements in zoom lens technology. Buying a lens that has a single focal length might seem like a bad idea. But prime lenses have a lot of advantages. They're smaller and lighter than zoom lenses. They usually have larger maximum apertures. They're almost always sharper than zoom lenses. But two zoom lenses can take the place of a bag full of prime lenses. This would probably be a good time to define a few terms. Focal length. This determines the lens's angle of view. Lower focal length numbers mean wider angles of view. In other words, an 8mm lens sees a much wider view than a 300mm lens. Aperture. This determines how much light the lens can gather. Smaller numbers here mean more light. A lens with an f4 aperture gathers twice as much light as a lens with an f5.6 aperture. These numbers do make sense, but only if you have a complete understanding of ratios and how to calculate the area of a circle. So we'll just leave that alone. Some lenses include image stabilization components to counteract camera shake. Stabilization can make it possible to use a slower shutter speed than would be possible with a lens that doesn't have stabilization. And I mentioned format earlier. That's the sensor size the lens is intended to work with. Full frame, APS-C, and micro four-thirds are the most common formats. And finally, lens mount. That describes which camera types the lens can be used with. For example, Canon and Nikon. The lenses are not interchangeable. Let's consider a couple of zoom lenses from Canon that, if you just look at the focal length, seem to be very similar. There's the EF 70-200mm f2.8. This is a lens that's intended for professionals. All the moving elements are inside, which makes the lens somewhat impervious to weather. It has a constant aperture across the zoom range, and that aperture is fast, f2.8. The lens has image stabilization built in, it'll cover a full-frame sensor, it costs $2,000, and it weighs 3 pounds. Compare this to the Canon EF 75-300mm zoom lens. This one covers a longer range, and it stretches all the way out to 300mm. You might expect it to cost more. But it also has a variable aperture, f4 to f5.6. The optics tube is plastic, some of the moving parts are exposed, and there is no image stabilization. This lens weighs just a little over a pound, and you can find it on sale for less than $200. So which is the right lens? Well, some people own both of them, using the larger and heavier lens in more rugged shooting conditions, or when a shallow depth of field is really important. The less expensive lens zooms further, and on a cropped sensor camera is the equivalent of a 480mm lens. So they're both right, depending on the conditions. And that's the primary point about lenses. Every lens is right for some purpose, at some time, for some person. You just need to figure out which lens is right for you at any given time. The standard zoom lens that comes with your camera is often referred to as a walk-around lens by photographers. It's the type of zoom you might put on a camera when you're just going to be out walking around. Expect the lens to cover a range from moderate wide-angle to moderate telephoto. The kit lens that comes with the cameras in this category, but lenses that include a wider range are also available, and they can usually be purchased with the camera instead of the kit lens. You'll pay a little more, but you'll get more range. 
APS-C lenses in this category range from about 18 to 55 millimeter zooms for a kit lens and 18 to maybe 135 millimeters for upgrades. There are wide-angle zoom lenses. These are lenses that can often be used well for landscape photography and interior architectural images. They often range from 10 to 20 millimeters for an APS-C camera. In a very specialized area, there are macro lenses. These are for people who like to capture extreme close-ups. Insects, flowers, stamps, coins, all of these are good subjects for macro lenses. They're usually single focal length lenses, often 50 millimeters or 100 millimeters. The 100 millimeter macro lens would allow the photographer to be further from the subject being photographed. Moving up the focal length scale, there are telephoto zoom lenses. Photographers who have a standard zoom lens often add a telephoto zoom as the next lens in their bag. For APS-C cameras, common ranges are 55 to 200 millimeters and 75 to 300 millimeters. These lenses give extra reach for wildlife photography and things like that. Earlier I mentioned the walk-around lenses. You might consider a super zoom. These are the ultimate walk-around lenses. Manufacturers attempt to create a lens that covers a range from wide-angle to long telephoto. There are significant shortcomings in sharpness and speed with these lenses. They're also usually large and heavy, but a single super zoom will still be lighter than a standard zoom and a telephoto zoom. These lenses generally cover a range from 18 to 250 or even 300 millimeters. And I mentioned prime lenses. You might want to have one or two of these, too because they have large maximum apertures. And that makes them useful in low light conditions or for images where you want a very shallow depth of field. A 35mm prime lens will provide a normal field of view on an APS-C camera. A 50mm lens provides a similar view on a full-frame camera. The 50mm lens, by the way, is an outstanding portrait lens for APS-C cameras because it actually is a short telephoto for that format. Oh, and there are pancake lenses. I'm not really a big fan of these lenses, but they do have good uses. They're small and thin. They're single focal length lenses. The primary advantage is the ability to make a camera smaller. And if you have a micro four-thirds camera, you'll find a variety of pancake lenses. But let's take a really wide-angle view. Ultra-wide-angle lenses can be a lot of fun. When 35mm cameras ruled, ultra-wide would be 10 to 12 millimeters. In a world where most amateurs and some professionals use APS-C sensors, 10 millimeters on a cropped sensor equates to about 16 millimeters full frame. And if you want an ultra-wide view, you'll need a lens that's in that 8 millimeter range. The prices will astound you, but there are alternatives. Consider the Canon EF 8-15mm f4 zoom lens. That equates to about 13-24mm to 24 millimeters in film camera equivalencies. I would love to have this lens, but it costs $1,249. That's a lot to pay for a lens that won't see a lot of use. Then I noticed the Rokinon 8mm f2.8 UMC with a Canon mount. It equates to about 13mm on a film camera. It's a fixed length lens. It does not include the Canon lenses autofocus, zoom, or auto exposure features. It is a very manual lens, but it's also priced at just $258.26. While I couldn't justify paying nearly $1,300 for a lens I would use infrequently, I could justify shelling out $260. Auto exposure, yeah, that would be nice, but it's really not worth $1,000 extra. 
Autofocus, also nice, but also not worth $1,000 extra, particularly when you have an ultra-wide lens that keeps almost everything in focus, regardless of how far it is from the camera's focal plane. Rokinon is a Korean manufacturer that cuts a lot of corners. The lens, as I mentioned, is fixed length, not zoom. There is no autofocus. There is no auto exposure. You can't run the lens at its maximum aperture without significant image degradation. But the build quality is surprisingly good. The depth of field for an 8mm lens all but eliminates any question about focusing. And if you're using an ultra-wide lens, you'll probably have it on a tripod and exposure is going to be something you will set manually. There's no question that a $1,300 lens will do more than a $260 lens. But do you need the things that that more expensive lens would do? I didn't. Samyang Optics Company Limited, the company that produces lenses under the Rokinon name, is a Korean company. It was founded in 1972. Lenses are produced at the company's plant in Masan, South Korea. At least, I think that's the case. Several names are associated with low-cost, single-length, non-automatic lenses. Given their common specifications and appearance, it seems that all of them are manufactured by the same company, at the same location. I generally recommend buying lenses made by the manufacturer of the camera that you use. That's because the quality of lenses is usually better than those of third-party providers. That's not an absolute, though, as the Rokinon lens shows. The build quality is surprisingly good for the price, and because of the way the lens will be used, the missing features really aren't deal-breakers. Still, if your budget allows it, stick with lenses from the manufacturer. In short circuits, let's stick with the photography theme here. About the time I was putting the finishing touches on the article about lenses, Adobe released a new version of Lightroom and Adobe Camera Raw. These applications are always released in tandem because they include the same features, ACR for Photoshop and Lightroom's built-in raw image management. There wasn't enough time to put together a full review, but I did notice one really astounding feature. When Lightroom stitches together a panoramic view from several images, particularly if the images were taken with a handheld camera, the finished image usually has to be cropped. The result sometimes cuts off important parts of the image. This version of Lightroom includes what Adobe calls boundary warp, and I'm looking forward to experimenting with it. You'll find an image that shows how it works on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's not an image I took, it's one provided by Adobe. Boundary Warp attempts to fill the frame using the various content-aware technologies that Adobe has built over the past several years. Not every panoramic image will be suitable for that kind of manipulation, though. The sample image provided by Adobe has content that can be adjusted easily without visible distortion at the edges, or at least easily if you have the automatic process that does it for you. Now that's not to damn this feature with faint praise. The capability is simply astounding. Check out the GIF image on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows the application in process. Click the small image and you'll see a larger one. In addition, Adobe has added support for several dozen lenses and they fixed a bunch of bugs. Other improvements include faster compilations of panoramic shots, better quality in the auto-straighten function, faster loading of images, 
tethered support for two new Nikon cameras and the ability to specify image locations when files are being downloaded from the camera. One more photography-related piece, this one about video. We have Vimeo for video perfectionists, YouTube for the masses. Users can post videos to Facebook, but apparently the company is now thinking about creating a separate service that would compete directly with YouTube and Vimeo. In a conference call with investors and journalists this week, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said Facebook is considering a dedicated place where people can go when they just want to watch videos. Zuckerberg has long been predicting that video will be a larger part of Facebook operations. About one billion people use Facebook every day, the majority on mobile devices. In fact, Facebook's statistics show that 90% of users access Facebook on a mobile device, either exclusively or in conjunction with access via a computer. The idea of a service separate from core Facebook operations came up during the call when Zuckerberg noted the success of Messenger. Messenger was split away from the main service primarily to make the two services easier to use on mobile devices. Having been split from the core service, Messenger has done very well. Video might follow the same line of development. Details of how a Facebook video service might work weren't provided because internal discussions are continuing. Video is increasingly a big part of the internet, and companies that provide video like it because participants stay longer and they're exposed to more advertisements. That makes more money for the video providers. Also starting this week, Facebook made it possible for Apple phone users to stream live video. They're still working on an application to do that for Android phones, so you'll have to wait. But you don't have to wait for spare parts, only on the website. This week, Chrome may be one of the safest browsers imaginable, but that doesn't mean you can forget about rogue software. And the U.S. Computer Emergency Readiness Team is warning about a threat called DorkBot. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.